welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tingser. We are here to inspire and empower leaders in the hospitality and restaurant industry to unleash the true potential of their organization, team, and themselves. In today's podcast, we have in my view one of the most knowledgeable people in the food and drink industry when it comes to trends and shifts in the economy, Peter Backman. Peter works with all the big players in the industry, both in the UK and internationally, for more than three decades. I sat down with Peter to talk about the industry now and the future, delivery market, leadership, emerging change, and much more. Grab your coffee and headphones and enjoy. I'm very excited to welcome Peter today. And I think you, you're out for a bit of a treat out there because you're going to have a bit of maybe insights you normally would not think about and stop up and reflect on in your in your busy day-to-day life, no matter what level you are in, in the hospitality and restaurant industry. Because the importance of stepping up, maybe sometimes when we are midways, we are now here midways in the year, it can be quite important. So welcome to the, the podcast. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Peter, to the people that didn't clock who you were, in the intro can you just give a bit of a quick download on who you are where you're coming from and what you're all about i'm uh Peter Backman. I'm known as Peter Backman full stop, or as Americans would say, Peter Backman period, which causes problems because that's the name that I trade under as well. So I trade as Peter Backman. I know about the whole food service market that covers everything from prisons right through to upmarket restaurants, through schools and pubs and everything like that. And I also know about the supply chain. So from farm to fork. And I help companies that are operators, they may be investors or they may be suppliers to the industry. Your typical gig, how would that look if you were engaged with you and wanted to know something about the industry you didn't know already? I don't have a typical gig. It's really interesting. I have a range of requirements for my clients. So I have some clients who pay me an annual subscription. We agree a program of work and I deliver it through the year. The other extreme, there are people who come to me with a question. They effectively buy an hour of my time and we sit down and we talk. And there may be anything in between where I need to do a bit of background digging or get my thoughts clear, maybe several meetings with a client, maybe producing a report, all sorts of different things. There's nothing typical. So you're a bit like the insight guru in the restaurant and hospitality industry. Yes, I'm an insight guru, but I only see insight as a platform because it's what does this mean? What do I do with it? That's the important thing. So in fact, there's a a whole chain of information and process that you need to go through. Many years ago, we talked about the information superhighway. I had my own, which was when you started off with items of data, how many pubs there were or how many meals were served in hospitals. You turn those items of data into bits of information and through a whole process, you end up with insight. I guess it's also arming people with insight so they take the gut out of it and they make better business decisions, both short and long term. That's my view. I find an awful lot of people make a decision on the basis of facts or what they call facts, but actually what they're missing is First of all, accuracy in the facts, but also the much bigger context that they live within. It's all very well to know something about a sector or a company or a person. But unless you know the direction it's going and where it's come from, you find you make the wrong decisions. 
for you to get to the stage where you actually help leaders, you know, know your facts and make better decisions, you, I guess you've been on a bit of a journey. And I can remember the first time we met and we had a, a coffee and it went very fast that one and a half hour where it's quite an interesting story. You are not a typical hospitality man, I can say that, without maybe out, out insulting you. Yeah, well, you're not insulting me. I've never worked in a kitchen. My wife won't allow me anywhere near the kitchen. I'm a scientist, which allows you to learn a certain way of doing things, which I've always applied throughout my professional career into food service, which means that first of all, you define it, then you measure it. And I also live on the the theory that if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. So I need to measure things. So that's what I've learned from being a scientist. And I started off working in a laboratory for a food manufacturing company, doing some basic research and also some everyday analysis of cake mixes and all sorts of things. You need to be well qualified to get on in that business. And I was never, ever going to get anywhere near a PhD. So I decided to leave and the direction that I needed to take was based on the fact that I wanted at least to be successful, if not to make money. And I worked out that people who made money sat at desks and wore suits. So that became my job description. I was fortunate in getting a job with a trade association where I could sit at a desk and wear a suit. Unfortunately, it was all about lobbying government, and that's really not in my DNA. So after a a short while, I left and I joined a market research company. I hadn't been there very long, and they said, we've got this project. It's all about eating out. Now, eating out is something we don't know anything about, but it's all to do with food. You know food, you go and do it. And that was over 30 years ago. And I was immediately struck by the industry at two levels. One, no one at that time knew anything about it. They couldn't tell me what it comprised, certainly not how big it is, who were the big players. There was nothing like that. So that allowed me to define the market and do some very basic work. And the other thing, which I think is hugely important, is that it's full of really nice people. Absolutely, yeah. That's spot on. That's uh, some of the th- that's where it makes it sticky, even though sometimes you can be covered in a lot of firefighting in a day-to-day just going down to restaurant level. That It's the people. It's the sticky bit. Well, it is. It's essential because the whole industry is about hospitality, making people feel comfortable and welcome and just doing that interpersonal reaction, which is so important. And if you get that right, then it feeds up through your operational chain as an operator and then it crosses over into the supply chain and in all other sectors as well. So in my experience, people who are involved in the food service industry, whether they are property people or lawyers or consultants or suppliers of ham and egg, all of them are bitten by the hospitality gene. Yeah, and I agree. It's like a drug. You know, you, you can't can't get enough of it. Just myself, you know, 40 years born and raised in it. And yep. uh, I tried to, to escape, if you can say that, a couple of times, but it always comes back. It's about the people and it's about the, the energy you get from them. I totally agree with you. you also an author, and I can see you brought a new book today. I have it over here. Yes, uh, I wrote this book called Restaurants Also Serve Food. Yeah primarily for suppliers to the industry, companies who supply grocery products. But it's based on roughly what we've been talking about up till now. I've learned through people who've read the book that it actually applies not only to the supply chain, but to the industry itself. It's all about the hospitality industry. And it's no surprise to me that the word food service, which I use to describe this whole industry, has got 11 letters, only four of which are food. So seven 
which is about 65% of it, is of service. And that's the balance that I think is very important. It's serving food, absolutely. But if you just serve food and you don't serve service, you're not in this industry. And arising from that are all sorts of implications for people who are in the industry and especially people who are not in the industry. If I can just give you some sort of example, if you take a food company, typically a food company will be getting most of its sales by supplying the multiple retailers, the Tesco's and Sainsbury's and so on. Those companies are very process driven, very organized. Everything is in lines, you know, the numbers rule. And that means that if you're selling into the industry, you've got to be of that mindset. You've got to do the right sort of thing, tie in with, with their requirements. When you shift over to the food service industry, and a lot of these food companies also supply the food service industry, if they're not careful, they'll take a successful sales person from the retail side and plonk them into food service and the structured approach the numbers driven approach just doesn't work so you need to be aware of why that happens and what you need to do about it and that's really the fundamental philosophy in my book this is super interesting because numbers has definitely ruled in the hospitality and restaurant sector the last couple of years and we all have seen the perfect storm the closure of many of our colleagues some of the big players and they've been all over the news and there's still a lot going on and that has come from you know a large amount of money as the industry needed i'm totally agree with that but also then it was a different way suddenly to manage and actually build business in a restaurant business which normally came when you build businesses my mom and dad did i'm still a big believer of that's the, the thing you build a story through the love for your people your food and your customers and that's in principle what you say as well. So what do you think that, that went on there the last 10, 15 years and why did we end it in where we are now? And Well, we're talking about the restaurant sector yeah. really. Yeah. Just as an aside, yeah. I, it's interesting that I've observed the, the whole food service industry over the last two or three decades and I've seen various sectors succeed. So there was the time when contract caterers were really the companies that people wanted to emulate and where they made money and then the pub sectors came along. It's more recently that the restaurant sector has sort of led the charge. And you ask what went wrong? Well, I think fundamentally what went wrong was that the business model, which worked initially, in other words, I can earn a certain amount of EBITDA from my, this one store. The way to double my EBITDA is to open another store. Beautifully scalable. So let's do that and let's keep doing that forever and we'll make a lot of money. The trouble with that is that you're not the only person doing it. There are a lot of other people doing it. And before too long, what happens is there are just too many new stores being opened. And I think that's fundamentally what happened in the period up to about 2015 to 16, 17. It wasn't really noticed because, for one thing, other less successful businesses were being shunted out of the way. Independents were closing and so on. And the other reason is that over time, these larger chains were just succeeding. It needed a little bit of a stutter from the customer to slow down the market and suddenly the overcapacity was exposed, like rocks when the tide goes out. In my view, I could see there was other things in the mix. There was you know, rising costs on different levels as well. When you talk about EBITDA, then the labor cost, food cost, and the flat market or a declining market, it's not easy then to control your, your cost in any, any restaurant environment. And then you had the challenge of talent and lack of workforce, a workforce cliff, 
as we're in now. I don't, and I actually don't think it's only the the restaurant industry. I think it's more sectors than besides the restaurant and food sectors that has the challenge. And then you know the whole economic situation, political agenda as well. It looks like we're not done yet because every week there's something new happening. This morning I saw there was a bit merger happening of the EI Group and Stonegate, and that's often an example in in my view. I can remember from a university when you had economics that when the market go flat the big boy starts to buy each other. And you see Pratt been out buying Eid and there's been other example of mergers. A flat market and you try to buy yourself growth and market share. Your analysis is correct. There are a whole bunch of other issues that have affected the industry as well, which we can perhaps come on to. The cost of property, damage to reputations, which has got influence and effects all over the place. But yes, I think we're entering a phase in the industry which is necessary, which is about consolidation. You mentioned EI Group and Stonegate. Bear in mind they're in the pub sector, which is quite different because what underpins the pub sector is property. They own their own property. One way of looking at the pub sector is to say that it's a property business that has serving of drink and food added on to it. I don't fully go along with that, but that makes it different from the restaurant industry, which is all about leased property. But I think we will see mergers, we will see acquisitions coming along. I think there are companies that have got assets that they'd rather not have, so they'll be selling those off. We may well see the emergence for a short while of conglomerates, companies that for financial reasons own quite a lot of different brands and different types of company. What they do with those in the longer term I think is hugely interesting because some of them will try to sort themselves out and reduce their complexity and others will embrace complexity and run a whole house of of brands. So I think that's hugely interesting to see what happens over the next two, three, four, five, ten years. Where do you think the market is in ten years' time compared to today? How would the landscape look? Ten years' time it is fine because I feel reasonably comfortable in saying if I'm wrong, you can have your money back. <laughs> <laughs> But ha- having said that, it's also difficult to be precise without appearing a little bit you know, like a magician. I think what we will see is the industry will have come through this current period of difficulty and will have a different shape. I suspect that the pressures on the big brand becoming a brand of several hundred stores, we probably won't see that type of company emerging anymore. We may well see some of the, the existing brands that are of that size, and after all, there aren't that many. We may well see them declining in size because the consumer doesn't necessarily nowadays need to know that the store that they're going into has got lots and lots and lots of outlets, which in the past gave them quite a lot of security, made the customer trust the brand. Nowadays, the customer, I think, has been educated much more in the ways of the restaurant sector. So they will be able to trust their judgment a bit more, which means that the larger brand isn't necessarily the model going forward. I think there are a whole range of other issues behind that thought as well. So I wouldn't be surprised to see lots of smaller brands in the market rather than a relatively small number of bigger brands. Are we going a bit back as it was 10 years ago, but with a different, of course, tools and, you know, speed and, and everything because of technology is advantage as well. Or... Yes, in my experience, you never go back 
it's a, a sort of a cycle or a helix. You yeah. know, you, mm. you think you're in roughly the same place, but actually it's different. Where I think it will be different is that people have now seen that it's possible to make money in the restaurant sector. 15, 20 years ago, it was very difficult to see how that could be done. That being the case, then how do you make money out of just having smaller brands? Because the EBITDA model that I described a little bit earlier doesn't drive the industry anymore. So I think what we will see is people, companies who own a number of different brands, but sharing stuff behind the scenes. The property people, the buying team, the technology team will be similar. They may not be absolutely identical, but they will be shared, there will be sharing of experience, all overlaid by a larger company that is prepared to invest in those brands. So in a way, merge corporate functions. Uh, in in a simple way, yes. Yeah. I don't want to give the impression that there will be a company that's got head office doing all sorts of things and they can just push out a brand. Yeah, yeah because again, as we talked about before, you need to you need to know your competitive advantage before we went on. We talked about having your competitive advantage on, on all levels in the organization and the focus on developing that competitive advantage all the time. Yes, I think so. And I think, you know, one of the problems has been that a lot of the chain restaurants anyway forgot what we talked about earlier, the, the essential DNA of the business and, and started treating the operational side of it as being a numbers game, just all about money. Let's cut our costs, albeit let's empower our team, but only so far so long as they obey the rules. And anyway, they may not stay for us for very long. That is the sort of antithesis of being a warm and cuddly and friendly and welcoming. I can remember two years ago, it was a bit like there was a theme called the, the silent talent challenge in the industry. So it was a bit silent. You know, people say, oh, yeah, there's some challenge around and Brexit amplified that a bit. Do you think that's another core reason why it actually went so wrong? Because you couldn't actually get the right people to do the job as well. So you were actually bootstrapping in a way a bit like your people resource in a way. Yes. And you couldn't train them fast enough with the speed you're opening in. That's a a function also of the, the scalability model. When we get to uh, 10 sites, we need an area manager. Mm. The type of people we need to manage the restaurants will form this type of person. This will be their job description. This will be their personal description. But the industry just isn't like that. And your store in Northampton may be quite different from your store in Abingdon and very different from your store in Baker Street. You've got to be much more sensitive than just having a book that tells you how to grow your business. Yeah, and I guess even though you have your 16 systems or how many systems you have in place, there's still that tweaking that needs to happen for every place. We had Andreas Carlson for Sticks and Sushi on the podcast. He said, we don't scale. We open one restaurant at a time from the bottom up because we need to understand that area and the people and the people we employ in that area how this is going to work. And then, of course, we put in our culture as yeah. part of that. But we need to train for that and we don't leave it before it works. Well, I couldn't possibly disagree with yeah. Andreas. I've been talking a bit with, and I'm, I know you as well, are quite involved. You know, sometimes there's, there's things happening in the UK. But if you look at Europe, you look at the US, Australia, if you look at the whole Western hospitality, restaurant, food service sectors, they have had similar challenges and going through them as well. And especially Australia is hit quite hard in the moment. And the US, I don't know if they're coming out, but they're definitely maybe in the middle of a similar situation of trying to find a new 
the new way of doing these things. Yeah, what, what's interesting looking at different restaurant markets around the world is although they may look fairly similar and you often see similar brands, certainly when you're in the food to go or the, the fast food or the quick service segment, you see the same brands all around the world. They may look the same, but actually under the skin, they can be quite different. So what strikes the visitor to the US or the observer of the US market who comes from the UK is the predominance of franchising, for example. We franchise over here. We are franchisees and we do it quite well, but we're not franchisors. Whereas in America, the growth model is about becoming a franchisor. Subway don't own any stores at all. They just franchise. That model just doesn't enter the heads of people active in the UK. If you go into Germany, the German customer is not very keen on brands at all. So you have a few, uh, Vapiano probably being very notable in the, in the restaurant sector, but you've got Nordsee and one or two others. But overall, they don't go for brands at all. They just like their local place, which may be mega, but it's just their local restaurant that they go to. So Germany is different again. France, amazingly, certainly in some towns, particularly Paris, is relatively similar to the UK. I say relatively because it's not the same and they have a different approach to the food that they eat and all that sort of thing. The takeaway from what I'm saying is that each market is different. The fact that they've, by and large, been experiencing problems is more a sign of the state of the market than an underlying issue which applies to all of them. It could go both ways. American brands going to the UK or the other way. And there has been a couple that have tried to go over to the US and tried to, to conquer that market as well. And Pret is one of them, and they're still there. Operating France have gone to France as well. I don't know if they've gone to Germany. Uh, and then you have companies like Wakamama, but they haven't scaled in the you know intensity as they had here in the UK. Is that, again, that little thing of difference in the way things are operated in the market? I think it is. As you say, you know, Wagamama, Yo Sushi, a number of other brands, and European brands like Paul or Le Pain Quotidien, are over in the States, but their number of units is sort of in the tens, if you're lucky, whereas, you know, you can name any number of chains in San Diego that have got 50 stores anyway, and that's just in San Diego and California generally. They don't scale, and that must, to my mind, partly be a mindset, and partly it's that the offer isn't quite right for what the American market wants. You mentioned Pret. They were in New York with 10 stores for a dozen years, and that was it, and they just beavered away and until they got something that worked for them and worked for the customer, and they were partly educating the New York customer to accept ready-made means made in the morning before the shop opens rather than made in front of your eyes. Having solved that conundrum, which took them a long time, they are now rolling out across the US. If they were a US company, by now they would be franchising all over the place. I suspect that that will come, but it's not there yet. Yeah, and franchising is, I know that from my background from McDonald's, is a very different way than operating your own stores because McDonald's in the past primarily had their own stores and then slowly they found out that we are a franchise business and that's what we do. One of the things I've seen is like some concept can be quite successful when they come into a market is a Chusar concept. They seems like easier to adapt into a market than a sit-down, casual dining setting. Yes, I think my analysis of that is for a start. And if you look at the UK as an example, we have a number of US brands over here, but not many. So we've got 
two burger chains, three pizza chains. We've got one fried chicken chain. We've got a sandwich chain and a coffee chain. Most of them actually set the rules for the market. Until McDonald's came along, okay, we had Wimpy, but we didn't really have burgers and fries adapted to a, a fast service offer. So McDonald's set the rules. Similarly, with Pizza Hut and then Domino's in the pizza market, a Subway have told us how to make that sort of sandwich. It's a first mover thing. That's one reason why the US brands have been successful. They, they could set the rules and everybody else who wanted to follow had to obey those rules. And I think the other one is is that with the quick service offer tends to be quite simple. The range of products on offer is relatively small. The supply chain is relatively simple. The need for trained staff can be sorted out quite easily. The QSR model lends itself much more to a systemized approach than the full service restaurant does. And I think it's also significant that in the US, when they talk about restaurants, they tend to talk about QSR restaurants rather than full service restaurants, because that's where the real scale and the real market size comes along. If you look at the UK market, there's also people trying to get in here now. There's a lot of new concepts coming in from, I've heard, China, Middle East, France, trying to get into, especially into the London market. And using this opportunity the market have been giving, especially around property and leases that's available. What is your view on that? And uh, would they still be here in five to, to 10 years? Yes. I mean, when you look at most overseas brands, other than more or less than the ones I've already mentioned, you know, they may have one, two, three, four stores, and that's it. So coming to London, like a British company going to the States, maybe a bit of a trophy thing. Oh, well, we've got a store in London. So I think there's that element. There is the other element that it's actually difficult to find useful partners in the UK who can do your thing because really, you know, we've got Chinese restaurants, we've got Indian restaurants, we've got healthy food. We, we do it anyway. Why, why do we need another brand? Um, I was in Milan a month or so ago talking to a number of restaurant chains and they said, well, we want to go to London and what are you going to offer, I asked. And they said, pizza. Well, I think we've got a lot of pizza over here already. You've really got to be different and having a love for food and doing it in the Italian way might work in one place, but it's not going to grow. So I think what we will see is a lot of chains who've already come over here and, that, and as you say, they've come from Korea, they come from Australia and all over the world. In a few years' time, some of them will have closed. Those that remain will still be small. So it goes the same way. The UK operator goes to the US and the same way it goes from people coming into a market because it's so different even though you have shared language. Some people think, oh, then it's easy to do. Let's just go to that country. And yeah, you can take a, a look at McDonald's, how long it takes them to uh, really establish themselves in the market. That's past now. You quickly forget they brought the whole commercialization of restaurant to and they were first mover in many markets on, yeah. on this. Same where I come from Denmark. There was like no really substantial restaurant change before McDonald's came in and they took that advantage. And then now there's a number of operators, but they are still the, the leading and they set the standards for the industry in Denmark as well. But, you know, McDonald's is an amazing company. When they came over to the UK, they took a small store in Woolwich in southeast London and they stayed there for two years and didn't do anything other than uh, refine their model, basically. So they took two years just to learn. Then they rolled out. They opened 25 stores in a very short period of time, one just down the road from me. And I remember walking in the first time and thinking, wow, this is fantastic. It's America. Mm. 
And that was amazing. And what McDonald's actually did was educate one, if not two generations of Brits and Danes and Germans and everybody else about eating out, about feeling comfortable, about not spending a lot of money, about just feeling comfortable in eating out. And I think they've done a huge job in growing the market. The whole way of scaling and expanding is changing. We will see a number of uh, smaller brands, but owning their their niche in a way, be very clear on their their proposition, and they will potentially have owners that owns multiple brands, and they will optimize via actually shared corporate function, but not in the same people would do all concepts. But there will be some shared structure, especially higher you go in in the hierarchy. Delivery market. That's a, that's a hot potato still in the moment. And there's a lot happening in that market all the time. And in my view, there's a lot of inflated stuff as well, because is it actually as successful as it's perceived? And there's a, you know, an invisible war and it's quite out in the media now between operators and the, the third party platforms. I know I saw McDonald's the other day change strategic partner. They sign up with Uber and now they're going do both. But DoorDash as well. And that, that for me says there's something not working or else they would normally not go do that because McDonald's is a, a partnership model and the supplier is quite important in their, in their business. So, so what is your view on the whole delivery model? Let's just take the, the, the UK and, and focus on that and, uh, and where is that heading and where are we now? The UK is, is interesting partly because it is one of the top two, three, four leading delivery markets in, in the world. It all comes from the internet. Amazon and many other companies have disrupted one market market after another. And it was only a question of time before it started to disrupt the restaurant sector. I was on the lookout for the disrupting approach 10, 15 years ago, and I didn't see it at the time. I mean, I was looking at TripAdvisor and things happening back of house. None of those are disrupting the industry. They are just moving it along a bit. And then comes delivery, which is really disrupting the industry because it's removing money from the industry and putting it in the pockets of delivery companies. And it's also changing the relationship between the operator and the customer, just removing that connection, which going right back to the beginning of our conversation, we said is the most important thing about the industry. So delivery is a real disruptor. One of the things it's doing is turning companies that were people-driven into being transactional businesses. And I think that's a great shame. By all means, turn yourself into a transactional business. If you make money and everybody's in the company's happy, then do it. But I think it's a great shame if it removes the hospitality element from the eating out experience. So right now, the delivery market is in a, I characterize it as chaos. That sounds wrong. It's not. It's it's really a question of lots of people are trying lots and lots of different things. And if company A does one thing, then company B will adjust what it's doing slightly to do something different. So it looks as though nothing is settled. And we're seeing the role of cloud kitchens or ghost kitchens or shadow kitchens or virtual kitchens or dark kitchens. I mean, all these terms have crossed my desk in the last 24 hours. So we're seeing that as just a part of what's happening. At the moment, the disruption is pretty chaotic. Will it settle down? Will people make money out of it? I hope they do. But you've got to ask yourself, where is the money to be made? Do most people know the fees can go, I think they're now talking about 25% to 35%. That's the normal. And they started quite low just to get people on board. And then they, you know, then it went fast, you know, and then they tweak your 
your rate. And I think that's what McDonald's probably had a very good negotiable rate without me knowing what it is. I guess it was around the 20s. And that's probably been tweaked over time. And then, you know, the operators found out. Francis Seas, which is a powerful player in, in a McDonald's organization, found out we're not making money on this. Like, and we're just having operational complexity about it as well. So we have to put more staff on. The managers are stressed out about it. We get more customer complaints. It's actually harming us in any way. We need to find a different way of doing this. Well, yes, simplifying that. Yeah. And one thing that people are doing is they say, I've got, I've got a restaurant here and I make food and I call it Peter Backman's Diner. Mm. Fine. But back of house, I can also be preparing Michael Zinsiger's chicken. So I've actually got two brands out of one kitchen. That way... I can earn more money, but I'm not really adding to my costs other than a bit of the food and the preparation costs. So in theory, that's an approach, and it's certainly one that, that some of the larger chains are pursuing in this country. So there are solutions. For every problem, there are sorts of solutions. The trouble is more challenges and more issues and more ways of doing business are, are turning up all the time. So more solutions are having to be found. Yeah, and I also guess that you're adding on another business model into whatever you do if you were a sushi business and you were doing sit-down and then suddenly you do delivery. You're taking in a totally different way in operating. You're actually taking a, a domino and plunking on the side of your business. You're, Besides, you're, you don't own the drivers if you use a third-party platform. All of that. This is a conversation that can last hours and I've been engaged in discussions on this topic for hours you have to sort of start get again at the beginning and and work out what actually you're talking about defining your terms being clear because if you're not clear then you just you know I use the words in one way and you use the words in the same word but in another way we're talking at cross purposes and yeah. I find an awful lot of that is happening in this space as well the real challenges are how to make money out of it the operator can make money because if your sales are 100 and you do an extra 10 in delivery then the fact that you give 35% away doesn't really matter because you've still got additional incremental overhead recovery that's a beguiling argument that doesn't always work when your 100 becomes 90 and you're then doing 10 on delivery and that's the sort of thing that's happening so you can make money the information is flowing into the hands of the delivery company and and I think that is in a way much more of a challenge there are cases where delivering companies are saying we can offer you a service to buy food for you so buy from us it'll be cheaper because we're buying in bulk the only thing we ask in return is that you tell us a bit about your dishes and what you buy so that we can make sure that we've got the right products on the shelf and the right quantities but what they're actually getting is a full understanding of how much product you buy the makeup of each of your dishes if the delivery company also knows what is in demand they can then specify precisely what a new company that they're taking on their books should be serving if they want to move from say pizza to burgers and that puts an awful lot of power in the hands of the delivery companies delivery companies are depending on who you talk to not making money they're probably making money on their ongoing business but their ongoing business is so small they're having to grow in so many different ways that that swamps any any profitability they've got they would make money if they stopped growing but if, as soon as they stop growing, uh, they'll be eaten by the others. So that's a challenge. Delivery companies are probably not making money at the moment. Some people say they're definitely not. But what they are doing is aggregating information. And how they actually use that information is really 
going to be a, I'd say, interesting. For some people, it's life-changing or life-threatening, but it's where we should be looking for this industry in the future. And I would add that Amazon having taken a share in Deliveroo's business is one thing. Back a winner, why not? Competition and Markets Authority in, in this country have said to Amazon and Deliveroo, you are not to share people, you're not to share information. And they've had to sign letters to that effect that they won't do it. So the government, or the Competition and Markets Authority anyway, are concerned about what that actually means in terms of operation and information share. Yeah, and it's interesting uh, because they stopped their own delivery business, Amazon, and then they did this massive share spy from delivery. But also that's been Just Eat has been out, uh, was the last week buying City Pantry, which is more the, the corporate delivery market as well, which also is a interesting growing things for, for, for restaurant going into trying to attack the catering market in a way. So suddenly you see the cater, catering market sitting and looking at what's the restaurant market doing in my market suddenly and attacking them in a different way. So I guess it also opens up for battles between companies you wouldn't have seen before because you can use technology and it gives them a leverage advantage in a way. So I guess Just Eat bought that to expand. Yes, the whole workplace feeding area for some of us has been an obvious area for for development in the delivery space. The contract caterers, the the Compasses and Sodexos of this world have been quite slow to recognise a threat or an opportunity and to do something about it. They're now moving more quickly and they are now competing with Just Eat, Seamless, Deliveroo, all for this lunchtime business. Not to forget that the lunchtime business, particularly in central London, uh, which is really where, what we're talking about anyway, it is also open with food-to-go offers. Every street, every other shop is a food-to-go offer in, in some parts of London. And that lunchtime market is huge. And that, as you say, is bringing into competition companies that thought never thought they would be. Yeah, and, and I guess also the whole catering market is a, a market that has been... They lived a bit in, in their own piece and haven't been impacted by things, but now suddenly the restaurant market, as they have to fight themselves out of these challenges will go and take a grab of that, you know, massive, very, very wealthy market. And you also see corporate companies investing in their staff. So food become one that what Google did 10 years ago now become the norm that we offer great healthy food for our staff and we pay for it as part of the package. Yes. And you're, you're seeing the growth of companies like Fooditude who sort of embraced this model competing with contract caterers. That sort of companies are also not merely providing food for people to eat at lunchtime, but also to cater for events and functions within the firm. And that, of course, that's a slightly different area that at the moment is being served by the contract caterers and by operations that have their own kitchen that can produce in bulk and then ship it in. So you're seeing a shifting landscape in that space as well. Again, I think it will settle down, but precisely how and where and when is a question that we can debate for a long time. Yeah, and uh, we've been involved in a project where they thought they wanted to be a retail operator. Now they've gone into the catering launch market and, and actually nailing that very well because they're taking the whole hospitality part we talked about in the beginning in and it's a part of it that the person that helps setting up the food and knows about the food it's a bit like for the staff to go in in a little restaurant just moves a bit faster and a bit more like buffet style but it's a very interesting market i think it's it's definitely worth keeping your eyes on there if you you have a product you think that can be used in that market what happens in america is also interesting so you have a lot of walk-in 
food-to-go type operations in city centres like Chicago and New York and so on that have actually got a very large kitchen behind. That kitchen is producing stuff for walk-in takeaway or walk-in sit-down and also for corporate catering. So they see their business not merely as supplying customers who walk in, but also as a corporate business. And that's just a standalone restaurant or food-to-go offer. That's super interesting because catering normally would say it was that kitchen that was put away out in the industrial area and then they had to drive in. Suddenly you are in the middle of the financial district, for example, and you can operate from there and you can then cost supply costs because, you know, driving around a city like London is the biggest challenge I guess when you have to do drop-offs without being a supply chain expert. I could imagine the, making that game working and making sure you have 10 drop-offs happen within an hour. Ah, oh, you should invest in drones that's the future. This takes us on to uh, one of the subjects I think we need to go into, technology. Technology has been a lot of talk about technology, front of house, back of house, you mentioned a bit about delivery is also digitization, social media and notoriously my view is the restaurant sector has been a bit behind and now picking up on this and now they almost overwhelm with the choice they need to make within technology. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a real problem for the, for the industry. You know, so historically, there have been systems for staff scheduling, EPOS systems. When they were fairly limited in impact, you, you could have two or three systems in the business. It didn't really matter too much. Then along came a class of company that started to integrate those systems. And now it's moving much more front of house for some people. We've talked about McDonald's. They're doing that. If you take Vita Mojo, who have got a really smart customer facing interface that's all front of house stuff as a company they're saying we're not actually a food to go restaurant we're a technology company that happens to serve food so they're learning all sorts of things about integrating the customer and the technology and the technology with the management using the fact that people are ordering this type of food or that type of food allows them to schedule what's happening in the kitchen the kitchen prepares the food they know how long it's going to take so they can tell the customer you're going to have to wait three and a half minutes for your food fine you know all of that integration goes on one can talk at real length about all the clever things that people are doing i think some of it is is probably a lot of hype Some of it is real, but the big problem, as you say, is sort of integrating this and linking it to the fact that technology is hard and numbers driven and this industry is all about people and the soft things. Your typical restaurateur, the typical person who is successful, the typical manager, the typical waiter who works in the industry is not a tech person. Asking them then to decide and design the right system or make the right selection is a real challenge. It's quite funny you mentioned VitaMojo because we had Nick on the podcast, Nick Popovich, the founder of uh, VitaMojo. And it's quite, I think it's quite a, you know, a brave move to, you know, you want to build the best technology for the industry. We can only do that by running restaurant ourselves. I think that's a, that's a commitment to do well and set excellence. But he said on the, the podcast, and maybe it's not the correct words, but he said, if uh, you're a restaurant business and you're not trying to become a technology company in a, a bigger degree you would not exist you'll be a dead business in the coming decades and he was like referring a bit to what mcdonald's have done recently they bought a software company they bought two actually that's part of their digitization journey and, and i i get that from a mcdonald's point of view because it's all about you know saving time it's about productivity and then you have the company that sells time and you have company that sells experience of course can technology in my view can do the heavy lifting for the managers and the employees as you said before and free up time 
But again, they need to know how to use that and need to be interested in it. And I think it's the last bit. They're not really interested. That's not why they joined that job. It was because of the people and developing people and being part of being hospitable. Yeah, absolutely. What I say to people when they they say, yeah, but if you know McDonald's or Vita Mojo or whatever are doing this and it's absolutely essential to the way they run their business. Absolutely agreed. At the other extreme, you go into the Woolsey or the Ivy. Ask yourself, well, how would it work if there was a kiosk for me to place my order? Yes, it can work, but it's not what you go into that restaurant for. You would reject it. You've got these two ends, as you've pointed out. You can either see it as a spectrum or you can see it as two boxes. I'd look at it as a, as a spectrum, but with a big step in the middle. And you need to know when you're reaching that step, because that step is about moving from a technology-driven company to an experience-driven company. We talked a lot about what's going on in the market, the change, the way you operate. Who is the rising stars? Who are the, the next talents coming up from a concept point of view? Who do you see that you need to, to look out for and get inspired by if you're out there thinking, where could I, could I go and get some ideas about how I take my next move. This is always a little bit of plucking ideas and who who did I see last week and that sort of thing. The companies that have been backed by a fund called White Rabbit, Chris Miller runs it, are an interesting bunch of, of small companies. They've got Cricket, Lena Stores, and they've got a few others, Andrew Wong. Interesting companies because these are guys that are, I'd say, passionate about their business, not necessarily driven by the thought that they're going to create 50 or or 100 stores. That's not what's important to them. If you take Jason Myers, he's backing Crust Bros in uh, Waterloo. Great pizza place. Banconi near Trafalgar Square. Fantastic pasta. That's another similar type of operation. So those are the sort of companies that I would say keep an eye on them. What about the independent market? I think it's a, quite an interesting time for the independent operator that, that maybe can grow into a couple of units because there's also a bit of a deals to be made from a property point of view. And if they have like a very authentic story and they, they can keep that growth under control without losing the culture, I guess they have an opportunity, if not in London, maybe outside London, locally really to take some market shares from the, the brands. And again, what's interesting, you, you can identify some restaurants, usually at the higher end, and you say, wow, this is fantastic. But actually, when you dig behind it a little bit more you see it's actually driven by private equity adam handling and and frog uh, he's got half a dozen stores and they're all fantastic absolutely fabulous you go into them and you think this is unique and really somewhere i want to go but actually it turns out to be a small chain and i think what's happening is that if you are successful People want to back you for your next success. And that's happening around the country. Um, I'd like to be able to offer a an average market brand or operation that's worthwhile visiting in Manchester or Leeds or Bristol. And there are any number when you go there. The trouble is they just don't trip off my tongue right now. I have one because I interviewed Nisha recently on the podcast for Moakley. They, of course, also backed by investment. But it's very interesting. They have like a very focusing on the human human factor and the love for people, food and customers, as you said in the beginning. And that's what they're scaling. And they're scaling together with the customers. So they go where the customers want to open. And they don't want to go to London because they know that they can open four stores outside London. And from a talent point of view, it's going to be much easier to nurture and find the right talent in cities outside London. I think they're opening Bristol and Leicester uh, in in due time. In my view, an interesting business to look at. Uh, You can feel this different when you come in, like you just described some of the concepts. So where do you get your inspiration from, uh, Peter? Going out there and educating others, I guess you need to 
find your inspiration, and it could be from outside the sector. Or who's your heroes? This is a corny one, but my heroes are my children. Yeah, you know, that's they, a good one. My daughter trained as an accountant. After she'd qualified as a tax accountant with KPMG, she came home and said, I'm leaving. And I immediately assumed she'd been offered a partnership with another of the big top firms. Uh, I said, what are you going to do? She said, I'm going to go and study at the London College of Fashion for a certificate. You know, I said, well, that's amazing. But, you know, what happens then? She said, well, the worst comes the worst. I go back to KPMG. (laughs) But what I'm really pitching for is a job with Burberry. And on the last day of her studying, she was offered a job with Burberry. That's that's fantastic. But even more and better than that, she's gone on and brought me three grandchildren. So that's one thing. And my son is also fantastic. He has recently got married. He now lives in St. Louis, Missouri. His firm and his place of work is in London, He manages uh, customer relations for a a market research company throughout North America and Asia. So, you know, I'm very proud of both my children. So he hasn't fallen that far from the the apple tree. If uh, in the end of the podcast, we always ask the people that's on to give like, if they can get one advice to hospitality and restaurant leaders out there or the food service sectors we talked about, what would your advice be? I would say very strongly, and I come back to my earlier point, do not forget that this business is about people. It's about money, because if you don't make the money, you don't exist. However, what makes it work, what turns the wheels, is people and service and experience. And don't forget that. That was a very good advice. We can only agree here at Hospitality Mavericks. That's the most important focus if you want to succeed, I guess, in any business, not only hospitality. Thank you, Peter, for coming along. I'm looking forward to catch up in the near future. And uh, where can people find you if they want to know a bit more about uh, who Peter is and maybe contact you, engage with you? Well, first of all, they can come to my office in, in Finchley, North London. But more specifically, my website is Peter Backman FS. FS stands for full stop. So peterbackmanfs.com. Thank you very much, Peter, and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Peter, for sharing your thoughts and extensive knowledge about the food and drink industry with us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please give us a like, share, review, or even better, sign up to our newsletter on hospitalitymavericks.com. Thanks to Let's Talk Video Production for your ongoing podcast assistance. We hope you enjoyed today's Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tingser. Tune in next time for another industry interview. And in the meantime, thanks for listening and be maverick.